Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Hello and welcome to you all. This is Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North, the Andrew Lawton Show. I had a gentleman come up to me. We had our big event in Calgary on Saturday and he said, I have some issues with that name that you give your show. And I said, the Andrew Lawton show? He said, no, 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 not that one, the other one. And I said, oh, Canada's most irreverent talk show. He said, well, you're not always as irreverent as that name suggests. And I was like cracking some jokes at uh, True North Nation that he said those were sufficiently irreverent. So I'll make a point of bringing some more of those jokes in, much to the uh, presumable lamentation of our overseers here at True North. But now I know I'm not talking about the Trudeau government. I'm talking about our uh, COO who at times confesses to being a bit of a killjoy. But uh, he is not, in fact. He just wants us to all succeed and not have to deal with any of these landmines. But I'll try to be sufficiently irreverent moving forward. It is good to talk to you all. We're going to have a rather busy show today. I want to chat later on with Tom Morazzo about the Canadian Armed Forces' new diktat for chaplains who, uh, despite being responsible for the spiritual welfare of soldiers, are no longer allowed to pray in public, including on Remembrance Day. We are also going to speak later on about this uh, ceasefire call that we hear from people on the left now. And it sounds all nice on the surface. Oh, I want there to be a ceasefire in the Middle East. I want world peace. Well, when they call for a ceasefire, what they're calling for is the annihilation of Israel, whether they choose to accept this or not. So why are so many on the left playing into that narrative. We'll talk about that with Joe Roberts, uh, with whom I disagree on a great many things. He is from the left, but he is an unabashed supporter of Israel and the Jewish people and has a lot to say about his colleagues on the left in these ceasefire calls. So Joe will be joining us very shortly on the program, but I, I want to begin with the bigger picture here, at least in Canadian politics, because uh, we've talked in the last few weeks about the liberal government having just a tremendously bad time holding on to any sense of power and popularity in polling. Polls have been rather consistent that if the election were held today, yesterday, tomorrow, a week ago, two weeks from now, people would, generally speaking, vote for the Conservatives. There was one poll that came out uh, just the other day, which if you extrapolated onto the seat map, showed that the Conservatives would have about 200, it was like 205 or 208 seats, which is a rather massive majority, especially given where the Conservatives are now. So this is, I think, an interesting thing. And I, I made the point, and I'll give the caveat now, I don't cover the day-to-day -day grind of polls. I, I'm not interested in, ooh, you know, we're up two points here and down two points there. But I do like to cover trends, and I do like to cover the bigger picture. And I do like to cover when the government's own polling shows that people do not want Justin Trudeau around. This is a fascinating, fascinating story. So the government will actually conduct polls, not that are partisan in nature, but are about basically whether the government is on the right or wrong track. These polls, because they're being paid for by taxpayer money, are tremendously expensive because they're so large. The Privy Council office, which is basically like the bureaucratic wing of the Prime Minister's office, is responsible for this. And they were doing polling every single week. They would uh, include about 24,000 people in these polls. They polled them from January to June of this year, so a six-month span. 
And in this span, we see that Canadians, the majority of them, do not believe the government is on the right track. Now, not only is this the case, but Canadians feel the government is on the wrong track on every individual policy issue, except for one. The only one where Canadians said, yeah, okay, I guess they're doing okay, is on Canada-US relations. And even then, the majority was 51%. So only, like, it was just a majority, just a majority, 51%. And let's put up the regional breakdown here, because I think this is always interesting. The red line is, of course, in the wrong, unsurprising in the case of Alberta. They don't like it, and Saskatchewan as well. But even in Ontario and Atlantic Canada and BC, uh, you see the very same thing, that everyone thinks they're wrong. The only region in Canada where they think the government is on the right track is Quebec, which I believe is actually the most compelling evidence for why Trudeau should go. If Quebec thinks you're doing something right, you're probably doing something wrong. So I actually think it's a nice little balance to have Quebec vote that way or Quebecers vote that way for Justin Trudeau. So I think that's where we need to look at the bigger picture here. Six months, tens of thousands of people, the government's own data show that Canadians believe the federal government is failing. Now, government is liberals. That's the goal here. Government is liberals. Liberals are government. But Justin Trudeau has personally taken over this institution. And there's this cult of personality around him, which is very interesting to see. And I was talking about this a little bit last week on the show, where Trudeau has basically made himself and the liberal brand synonymous, in which he is not interested in whether the party or government of the liberals can survive him. He wants to go down with the ship. And I think it's liberals that would probably be very well suited to take a look around and say, I don't think this guy is interested in the long-term survival of our party. You know, there are a number of examples, and we can look at Alberta with Jason Kenney, who I think in a lot of ways didn't see the writing on the wall that he was on his way out. But when he had that leadership review, which he very narrowly won, and I would say that a narrow victory is not a victory in a leadership review, but he got over 50%. He did not say, well, you know what, it's my party, and you know, come hell or high water, I'm staying. He said, all right, I'm gone. Because Jason Kenney realized that the party, the government, is bigger than him. Justin Trudeau, I don't believe, knows that. Justin Trudeau, I believe, does not care about what happens in Canadian politics after he is out of the picture, which is why he's going to hold on for as long as he can. I mean, like the Trudeau campaign anthem for the 2025 election should basically be that Dido song, White Flag, uh, with the line, I will go down with this ship. Like that's basically the Trudeau campaign song. So when he's coming in there to do the big speech, that Dido's White Flag should be playing. It's not Canadian content, so maybe they can't get away with it, but it is a sinking ship. That is the metaphor. It's worse than when the plane crashed or the bus crashed into the plane in that one election because the Liberal government the Liberal Party right now are going nowhere. Now, I think that when we take the perspective on this, that we've been taking when we view the poll numbers and all of that in the past on the show and continue to do, is that the Liberal government right now is entirely loyal to Trudeau. The Liberal caucus is, at least in its messaging, in its narrative, entirely loyal to Justin Trudeau. And you have to wonder like what he has on them 
there's a whip in the Liberal Party, just as there's a whip in every other party. And the whip's job is to basically whip the caucus. That's the goal of the job. That's the point of it. And you got to assume that someone in the whip's office just has like House of Cards style, this manila envelope filled with dirt on every single Liberal member of Parliament, which is why none of them have dared speak up about this government. And I, I think, I mean, I'm joking, but not really. I mean, maybe there are people that are just genuinely true believers in this. They're buying into Trudeau in the same way that CBC journalists did in 2015. They look at him as this uh, big old dreamboat and they fail to see the flaws in his government. Maybe, uh, just maybe you have people that do not believe they have a political career outside of anything that will happen with him. Because this is the fascinating part here. No liberal cabinet minister, certainly, who has hitched themselves to the Trudeau wagon will really be able to separate themselves from that. So if Trudeau does go down with the ship, as it's looking like he will, if poll numbers persist, then anyone who was at his side for that journey, his co-captain, his bosun, whoever was swabbing the deck on the ship to torture this metaphor even further, uh, isn't going to be able to say, well, what I would have done differently because you were him. You were that. I mean, Christian Freeland, people talk about her as being some contender for the premiership of Canada, for the leadership of the Liberal Party. If, if Justin Trudeau's name is as mud as the polls suggest, how on earth would Christian Freeland ever have a chance at salvaging this. So it's why I'm not terribly scared to follow up on our chat on Thursday with the idea that Justin Trudeau does step down, which I don't think he will, and let someone else take the helm because there is no one else that would rise up in that, that would fill the vacuum, that would fill the void, who isn't just an extension of Justin Trudeau. And I think that right now, there's a big difference because after 2015, after 2015, when Stephen Harper left, uh, a lot of people didn't really see it as a, as a catastrophic collapse of the party. They saw it as a party and a government that has run its course. The Harper government was very popular among conservatives and cabinet ministers all had a chance to speak up. And that was why you had like that clown car of a leadership race where just like, you know, 97 people get out of the Prius and all say, I want to be the leader of the conservatives. And uh, you had some who were, you know, doing very well and were very popular, like uh, Andrew Scheer and uh, Maxime Bernier and a couple of the social conservatives did very well. And then you had other people like uh, Rick Patterson, Pooterson, Porterson, Rick Porter. Rick, oh, Rick Peterson, that's it, sorry. Uh, he's so irrelevant, I couldn't remember the name, uh, who's now just uh, founded some other party whose name I can't remember, called the, I think it's the Canadian, Canadian Future. Yes, I had the interim leader on there. But uh, nevertheless, we had a really, really, really uh, busy leadership race because the party was not as toxic as a brand. And that's not to say it didn't have to rebuild and hasn't gone through a lot in the subsequent years, but that's not where the liberals are right now. So I don't see any compelling person in that party that could stand up and say, I am going to right this ship. Melanie Jolie, who like was basically blaming Israel for bombing a Palestinian hospital without evidence. Is she the one? I mean, yes, if we need convening done, she's the woman for the job. Uh, Francois-Philippe Champagne, who also did the very same thing. Uh, some people are saying Anita Anand. She maybe is a, a bit of an independent voice, but all of these people are people who have lived and died with the Trudeau brand. 
And I will say here that the liberal fascination with going negative continues. There was this uh, really hilarious tweet from the Liberal Party about Pierre Polyev, because when liberals are plummeting in polls, they have to whip out, like there are three things they go with. They go far-right American politics, they go abortion, or they go assault rifles. Those are the three. Uh, which one is it? Survey says... Ah, far-right American politics. If you if you had your money on far-right American politics, you win the grand prize. Uh, this is the document here. Pierre writes, love of far-right U.S. Tea Party politics. Just as Trump used, it's in bold, so as to scare you even more. Just as Trump used the Tea Party as the base from which to launch his presidential career and remake the Republican Party in his own image, Polyev is using the Tea Party's tactics and politics of rage as the basis for his own political ascent. So uh, there we go, far-right American politics. So uh, then, yeah, my one colleague is saying the Tea Party, he forgot about them. Yeah, the Tea Party was all the rage back in uh, 2012, which is the last time the Liberal Party of Canada had an original thought, as it turns out. So nevertheless, want to pivot here ever so slightly to our discussion we had yesterday on Israel. And uh, I will say time and time again, I am a supporter of Israel and of the Jewish people, and I have been heartbroken to see all of the displays that have masqueraded as normal political protest. People storming into a Jewish-owned restaurant in Toronto, people who are protesting outside literally a Jewish daycare in Toronto, not to mention the vile and very often anti-Semitic rhetoric we hear from these people. But oftentimes, things are not explicitly anti-Semitic or anti-Israel. They are cloaked in language that may sound entirely normal. One of these is a word that sounds on the surface to be wonderful, which is a ceasefire. People, I think, understandably associate a ceasefire with peace. Two belligerents in a war that agree for a time or perhaps permanently to lay down arms and perhaps work out some agreement in the meantime to end conflict. This is something that, again, on the surface, sounds lovely, but in the context here is completely devoid of sense and understanding of history, and I would say is devoid of justice. Hamas struck a terrible blow against Israel more than two weeks ago. There are still more than 200 hostages who are being held captive by Hamas. You've had uh, 1,500 innocent lives lost to this conflict. Israel has a right to defend itself. And Israel, which has been living under the perpetual threat by Hamas for years, has understandably the desire to obliterate Hamas, which is under any interpretation of international law, it's right. Why then do we see so many people, including liberal members of parliament, new democratic members of parliament, many people from the left calling for a quote unquote ceasefire? I want to welcome to the show, Joe Roberts, who is a uh, progressive voice, a fantastic writer and, and podcaster. He is the chair of JSpace Canada and joins me now. Joe, it's good to talk to you again. Thanks for coming on today. Hey, thanks for having me, Andrew. Appreciate I, now, it. Now, I'm not trying to wedge you on your colleagues on the left with whom you get along on, you know, probably 90, 95% of issues, but I know it's been a very challenging time in the last couple of weeks. And I was just wondering, first off, if you could just explain how that's been, because I, I know that other people I've spoken to of your political persuasion have said they've, you know, learned that some of their friends were not actually their friends. No, it's been sobering. I mean, I think, look, we saw violence and brutality on October 7th, that's incomprehensible. You can't even put words around it to make it make any sense. Uh, 
And the response from some of our allies on the left has been shameful, I think is the best word for it. I mean, really, truly hurtful. People that we've made uh, allyship with on, on racial justice, on social justice, on economic justice, we stood by, we've been supportive of their efforts uh, when, those, when, when they were threatened. Uh, we just didn't see the same. Now, I want to be really clear. It's not everybody. It's a, it's a fragment of the left. But it has been a really problematic thing. I mean, and the, you know, you, the, the vitriol, the anger, uh, the interlacing of anti-Semitism is problematic. All around, it's been a real challenge. When we look at that word ceasefire, it, it's, to me, a, a bit of, I mean, we hear oftentimes from people dog whistle as, as the term, that something can be, uh, you know, offensive without intending to be. And I, I fear that ceasefire calls are like that, because when someone says we need a ceasefire, what they're in fact saying is that Israel has no right to defend itself and no justification to defend itself. And you had a, a great piece in the National Post uh, about this. I was wondering if you could explain how you've approached this and these calls for a ceasefire. Apparently, he was not just staring intently. His uh, camera has frozen. We'll get Joe Roberts back on the program in a moment. Uh, let me, while we're doing that, play this clip. This was a, a call to Pierre Polyev that was put to him by a CP24 reporter on Saturday about this. Did you tell your MPs not to sign this? Or symbolically, do you think it would have... Obviously, you can't force a terrorist organization, an organization that's been declared a terrorist organization for decades now in this country, to abide by it. But symbolically, do you think it would have made a difference? What? To sign this letter, at least to say... The Americans no. have encouraged and they've had discussions with Netanyahu to you know, undertake the most peaceful approach possible in this situation, while also saying Israel has the right to defend itself, which the prime minister here has said on several occasions since this all unfolded, this horrific event two weeks ago. So what is your question? Symbolically, would it have, you know, maybe been a, a gesture to have conservative MPs join liberals and new Democrats and Greens and saying, let's call for a ceasefire? Um, it would have been a gesture to Hamas. Uh, to uh, it would encourage Hamas to become even more violent and vicious. Obviously, we uh, our heart breaks for every lost Israeli and Palestinian innocent life. The blame rests entirely with Hamas and their state sponsors in Tehran, the Iranian government, which helped orchestrate this attack. We have to defeat the terrorism in order to get to a peaceful two-state two state solution that will allow Israelis to continue to have a Jewish state and Palestinians to have an independent state of their own. I, I share that clip with you to set up some of the reaction to it. Now, admittedly, a lot of this may be colored more by people that dislike Pierre Polyev than people who dislike Israel, but there was this one tweet from a, a critic of Polyev's who says that when you reject this ceasefire premise, it's because you're not understanding world peace. So this idea that a ceasefire and peace are equivalent. And we have uh, Joe Roberts back from uh, JSpace Canada. Uh, Joe, I, I don't know how much of my previous question to you you heard, but but basically is a call for a ceasefire a, a dog whistle, to use that term, from, from people that are basically saying Israel does not have the right to fight back when it's attacked? Look, I think there's a misconception about what a ceasefire is in this case, right? And what is the long-term goal? We've been in this situation in Gaza five times, six times uh, since the disengagement from Gaza uh, back in 2005. What does that mean? That means we've had these conflicts uh, every year, every other year, 
there's uh, you know there's been this phrase used mowing the lawn uh, it causes civilian lives it costs Israeli lives it costs lots of money and security uh, it's not it's not a good situation it's not sustainable the status quo is not working and so I think there's a realization across the board both in Israel the reality they recognize that the citizenry demands a response that this doesn't work that this 1400 deaths uh, and this brutality is not acceptable and they must act and I think there's a realization that there is no path to peace uh, without a fundamental change to the status quo, right? And so that means Hamas must be removed. It can no longer govern Gaza so that it can rebuild and do this again in a couple of years. So we'll be right back in the same place that we are today. And in the in the long run, we're going to have more death and more violence. So the goal here is a ceasefire is a pause. It's saying we're going to push a pause right now and come back to this violence over and over again, never break the cycle. And what I think what we're advocating for is to say, actually, you know, this needs to be seen through. Hamas must be removed. The Palestinian people are not the enemy here. Hamas is the enemy. Remove Hamas. And then we can actually start a political solution to this conflict uh, through a two-state solution, which is the only real way we'll ever end this cycle of violence. Yeah, I think that's an important point. And I, I often believe that, well, not often, I, th I think it's a pretty clear cut fact at this point that uh, people who are very critical of Israel view Israel as being the impediment to a two state solution when, in fact, oftentimes it's the Palestinian activists who want a one state solution, which is an entire Palestinian state. Well, I mean, let, look, let's be clear about what a one state solution means. It means the erasure of a Jewish state. Uh, it means the erasure of the Palestinian a national aspiration, which they've worked very hard to legitimize over the last 75 years. They don't want it, frankly. No one under that would live under a one-state solution would want that, right? 71% of Palestinians reject a uh, one-state solution. 81% of Israelis reject a one-state solution. There's no path forward here without two states. You know, there was a call yesterday uh, between the Palestinian Authority ambassador to the European Union and some members of of the of the EU, and someone said, "Well, what about a confederation?" Which is another word for a one-state reality. And he said, "Look, we reject this. Why would you?" And he, I've never seen someone so angry. Right? He said, "We reject this. Why would you tell us that we don't deserve our own state?" So the reality is, it has to be a solution. Hamas is the impediment to that two states. Right? That is, you cannot deal with a terrorist organization. Everyone knows this. You have to get rid of Hamas, and we'll move towards two states. It's the only long-term solution here. The one thing I also find jarring about a lot of these calls for ceasefire is that they're not accompanied by a call to release hostages. Uh, sometimes they are, but oftentimes they're not. They're just unqualified. Israel must stop its attack. Israel must stop its counteroffensive. Again, I, I understand the impetus, right? I mentioned this in the piece. They're suffering. Human lives are being lost. There's no question about that. It's a horrible tragedy, no matter who they are. On either side, Israeli, Palestinian, it doesn't matter. And we have an obligation to make sure that this way this war is waged in a humane way. That means humanitarian aid continuously going into the west or to Gaza. That means we would advocate for the restoring of electricity and water to Gaza. Uh, we we would advocate for for fuel to be got, to be brought in for the hospitals, recognizing there are challenges uh, with humanitarian aid, but still we think it is a moral and humane thing to do, right? I think what the challenge here is. When people don't see the humanity of both sides of this conflict, uh, which it is easy to do when you are stuck in an echo chamber uh, in the West where you have no stakes in this, in this, the people that are real lives on the ground don't matter to you. Uh, it's easy to say, I'm picking a team. This isn't a team sport. These are human beings. And the reality of this place is 
There are 7 million Israelis. There are 5 million Palestinians. Nobody's going anywhere. We have to share this place. We have to share this land. And we have to learn how to do that together. Let me just ask you then, Joe, about a little bit of the way forward here. And so far as you and I are able to, you know, put our heads together and solve this conflict in the next couple of minutes. But where is the way forward? Because right now, the Palestinian Authority is certainly a much better force than Hamas, but there is a legitimacy problem there that's often raised. And uh, oftentimes, I think it's raised by by people who are, are more sympathetic to Hamas. But again, you know, Abbas has, you know, stayed there for far longer than, than he was elected. But the counterpoint to that is that if elections were held, it's very possible that Hamas would end up becoming more powerful. So uh, how do you go forward when even the Palestinian cause, such as it is, isn't unified under one main voice and one main advocate? Yeah, I mean, look, this is a problem. And let's be clear, you know, there has been no movement on peace building for the last 15 years. We've had, frankly, we've had extremists on both sides, uh, extremist leadership in Israel. We've had extremist leadership in the West Bank uh, of the Palestinian Authority who've said status quo is good for me. If it works for me, it works for everybody. Well, we've seen that that doesn't work. It actually breaks down and causes horrible violence. So, you know, there's a lot of consternation about the, the Palestinian Authority. And I agree uh, they have a legitimacy problem among their own people. Abbas is 88 years old. He's a chain smoker. You know, he's, he's not doing great. Uh, I don't think he's going to be the leader to move housing people forward. And whenever reunification of Gaza comes, which it has to come, you, you can't have a two-state solution with a, a separate government in the in the West Bank from Gaza, uh, it will have to be under a housing authority. Now, what does that mean? I mean, the housing authority has been undermined, defunded, uh, challenged, I think limited in its abilities uh, somewhat by the Israelis to make sure that they wouldn't become a threat. Um, but I think we also look at the good things that the Palestinian Authority does. The Palestinian Authority has been committed to the two-state solution along the 1967 borders uh, since 1987 when it was founded. Um, the Palestinian Authority has rejected violence, right? You, you don't see violence being done in the, in the name of the Palestinian Authority. You don't see a, a third intifada that's called by Abbas. They recognize a path forward is two states. They also recognize Hamas is a dangerous and, and violent extremist group that cannot be allowed to take root in the West Bank like they did in Gaza. And when they just remember, when Hamas took power in Gaza, they threw people off roofs. They, they, ex, they executed 700 Palestinians to take power. All of them were affiliated with the Palestinian Authority and Fatah, the, the, uh, the faction that controls the Palestinian Authority that Abbas is a part of. So I think there's a lot of alignment here. What we're going to have to do, and it's going to take uh, U.S. leadership, uh, Canadian partnership uh, and our allies are going to have to come together and have a plan. How do we actually strengthen the Palestinian Authority? How do we train them? How do we arm them uh, so that they can defend their themselves and, and, and also govern Gaza? It's not going to happen today. Even when Israel leaves, there's going to have to be some kind of transitional authority. But I think that the long-term solution without the Palestinian Authority being in Gaza and a unif reunification, there's just no pathway to peace. Just to go back to where we started on, on progressives and, and their approach to this issue, there are some people that are, are just anti-Semitic or are very dyed-in-the-wool, uh, committed to an anti-Zionist position that it goes very close to anti-Semitism. But I have to assume that on both sides, uh, there are people that are maybe misinformed, maybe ill-informed, or, or maybe they're letting their idealism get away, get in the way of the reality. What, what, what are the people in that camp? Let, let's talk about those ones, which may actually be within reach of persuading here. What are they missing? What would you like them to know? 
Oh, we've lost uh, we've lost Joe again. I was actually looking forward to his answer to that question. So hopefully we can get him back in uh, just a second here because I, I do believe there are some people that are just against uh, this country against its people. And I think those are the ones that are storming Cafe Landwehr in Toronto. Those are the ones that are protesting Jewish daycares. Those are the ones that are chanting from the river to the sea. Those are the ones like that uh, former head of the BC Civil Liberties Association, Harsha Walia, who said it was beautiful, beautiful to see Hamas uh, parrot glide into uh, Israel. She said it was beautiful. She like imagine if someone in 1944, 1945 had just said, "Oh, how, how beautiful is that German ingenuity that they learned to run gas into chambers because they were so devoted to their cause of ridding Europe of Jewish people." Like, that is the level of insane, evil depravity that has been mainstreamed and normalized in society. So uh, all of that is to say I'm very grateful to have had Joe Roberts on the show. We'll have to uh, check into the connection issue there and have him back on another time. But uh, thanks to Joe Roberts, the chair of JSpace Canada. I wanted to move on to this story which came up out of Ottawa. I, I have never shockingly been a girl guide. I know you were, it, well, it's 2023, I could have been. Uh, but uh, Girl Guides of Canada, which has been around for, as my late uh, British grandmother would have said, donkey years, which just means a long time, but it's far more amusing to say it with a British accent. Uh, Girl Guides of Canada has told its chapters they are not to participate in Santa Claus parades. Yeah, Santa Claus parades. Now, you may wonder why. It's not because Santa Claus is an evil, uh, you know, white male patriarch, but it's because Santa Claus is associated with Christmas, which is a religious holiday, and Girl Guides of Canada believes it needs to embrace its policy of secularism in the name of diversity, inclusion, and tolerance. So as such, a Girl Guide chapter, which uh, wants to jump in and join the Santa Claus parade as the chapter in Kanata near Ottawa or or in Ottawa wanted to do is unable to. So this is rather absurd. And you know, every year there are these stories where you know people will coin the phrase or use the phrase a war on Christmas. And I find often the so-called war on Christmas gets a bit overblown. But I don't believe if a girl guide group wanted to, I don't know, not that they have Ramadan parades, but I don't think if a girl guide group wanted to uh, march in a Ramadan parade as a show of solidarity, that they would be they would be told they are not allowed to do so. Uh, but this is what happened here. And then you caught you uh, juxtapose that with this story that was broken last week by the Epic Times, which was a fascinating and very upsetting story that military chaplains who are there for the spiritual health and well-being of members of the Canadian Armed Forces are now prohibited from doing public prayers, including at Remembrance Day ceremonies. They have to be as nondescript and non-religious as they can. Uh, Tom Marazzo is with me. He is a, well, you know him as a key volunteer and player with the Freedom Convoy and also author of the book, The People's Emergency Act. But he is also a retired captain in the Canadian Armed Forces and joins me now. Tom, uh, good to talk to you uh, with a bit of a different hat on today. Yeah, thank you. This is unusual that I get to talk about something different than the convoy. 
So thank well, you. Well, it's uh, look, and I mean, thank you for your service, as as I say to any veteran that I speak to. But this is a really, really disgusting turn of events. I mean, the reason military chaplains exist is because faith is so tremendously important to people. Uh, we have incorporated in our religious observations, uh, you know, in church, my church and every church I've ever been to, uh, honoring veterans on Remembrance Day. And at Remembrance Day ceremonies, prayer has always been a very uh, prominent thing. And why on earth is now the time to say this is no longer permitted? These people that are still part of the Canadian Armed Forces that have a role are no longer able to actually be spiritual leaders. You know, <laughs> it's such a bizarre story. <clears throat> Excuse me. I I don't know what the, the timing of it other than to say that it, it does seem like it's something orchestrated. Um, but I don't want to, I don't mean to suggest some sort of, con, you know, conspiracy theory or anything, but mm -hmm. I just find it interesting. And when I saw the story broke, the first thing I thought was you better change the first line of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which is, you know, whereas Canada is founded upon the principles that recognize the supremacy of God in the rule of law. Um, so it begs the question, what is it that veterans are fighting for? if not for, you know, the very way of life that we have in Canada? Why did our veterans, why did our combat veterans go to World War One and Two and Afghanistan and Korea and all these, these missions overseas, if not to preserve the way of life that we have here in Canada? And for many, that includes God. And it doesn't have to be the Christian God. It could be the God of whatever religion that you prescribe to. But, you know, the timing of this, I find extremely bizarre, especially coming right up, um, you know, close to Remembrance Day. And it, it makes no sense to me other than I would say it, it is just one more further erosion on, you know, the, the foundations of this country that we built. And I don't mean my generation, but I mean the Judeo-Christians that settled from Europe and came and built Canada into such a great country, or what it used to be. Uh, I would argue that it's not so great anymore under the current uh, political landscape. But it's interesting to me that, you know, the very things that made us Canadian seem to be the very things that are being taken away from us slowly, incrementally. And to me personally, I find it really offensive. You know, I, I spent a lot of my life questioning uh, my religious beliefs. And I have had many occasions to sit down with military padres and talk about the, the existence of God and where I fit into the universe. Uh, in, you know, the morality of what I'm doing or what I did for, for 25 years of my life. And to see that that somehow becoming sort of taboo um, amongst the, those celebrations that are so important to us to honor the sacrifices of, of past men and women who have given up their lives. And not just the ones who have given up their lives, but who have been wounded, who have psychologically suffered mm -hmm. as, you know, as a result of answering the call of Canada to go off to foreign lands and do things and doing that, knowing they were one protecting the way of life in Canada in the traditions that we have. But, you know, there is a saying that, uh, something to the effect that, you know, in war, um, everybody 
in a foxhole believes in God, hmm. you know, and I certainly think that it is an affront to the Canadian public to put limitations or even curtail or, or reframe these, these things around Remembrance Day ceremonies. I just think it's wrong. Let, and I'm not saying, just... I'm not just, Go ahead, go ahead. No, I just wanted to jump in just to give people the full context of what has mm -hmm. been changed here. So uh, the directive, and I, I'm reading this from the Epic Times here, uh, while the dimension of prayer may occupy a significant place for some of our members, we do not all pray in the same way. For some, prayer does not play a role in their lives. Therefore, it is essential for chaplains to adopt a sensitive and inclusive approach when publicly addressing military members. It goes on to say that uh, any spiritual reflection, not a prayer, needs to be inclusive and nat in nature and respectful of the religious and spiritual diversity of Canada. Uh, because of the gender-based analysis, you cannot actually refer to God as male. Uh, if you are going to re reference God, you can't uh, say Heavenly Father because that's gendered. Uh, and yes. then uh, they've also taken away, and this is, I think, really crazy. Uh, there are scarves that chaplains wear, and I, I didn't know this necessarily, but each scarf has a, a an emblem on it, depending on the religion of that chaplain, because they aren't all just Christians, and those emblems have to go. So now, like a, a Christian minister, or a Catholic priest that's a chaplain has to pretend that you know they are just this nondescript, uh, you know, force here. So th they're trying to just. Like, it's weird that they're trying to do the best of both worlds because they're trying to claim that we still have this spiritual role, but we have to strip away the thing that makes that role relevant to people. And, and by the way, it's Muslims and Jews that also suffer from this because they're not allowed to have any uh, recognition of their faith, if, of a chaplain of their uh, denomination. Yeah, I, I read all that as well, and I found it interesting that this report uh, or this policy came as a report based on a 2022 committee studying diversity and inclusion within the Canadian Armed Forces. Um, this is more wokeism. This is what it is again. This is about, you know, the true nature of, of supporting military members on the battlefield or military members at a Remembrance Day ceremony. This is about wokeism. And, you know, to me, it's irrelevant what religious faith you come from. What is relevant to me is, you know, section two to a of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which is, you know, you have a fundamental freedom regarding uh, freedom of conscience and religion. Okay. And so when you look at this woke ideology, uh, which I would say is directly attributed to Marxism. Marxism isn't very friendly to religion of any kind. This is just one more example of a Marxist takeover of another institution. It's another nail in the coffin of the Canadian military. Why would anybody want to join the Canadian military given everything that has been socially experimented on within the, the CAF? I mean, our priority needs to be about training for the defense of this country, not spending copious amounts of hours being trained in diversity uh, and denied, you know, your section two, you know, religion, uh, freedom of your conscience. So I, I find the whole thing absolutely absurd. And, and the reason I say, why would you want to serve is because what the hell are you fighting for? What is it that you want to sacrifice your, your life to defend in this country? I don't even recognize this country anymore.
There have been, like I know it's separate from the Chaplin discussion, but there has been this tremendous relaxing of standards in the last few years <laughs> for uh, members of the Canadian Armed Forces. And just to give one example, I was at the airport uh, the other day and I uh, was walking through and there were four uh, young men in uniform that were you know, just eating at the restaurant and presumably going somewhere or coming back from somewhere. And, you know, one of them had this like neck tattoo, which I, look, I don't love tattoos, do what you want. And, you know, he's still serving his country and I have no ill will towards him. But there are certain standards that existed even a couple of years ago that don't now. And the reason they've had to do that, and I know the policy on tattoos is one of them is because no one wants to join. There is an enrollment, uh, or there is an enlistment issue. There is a morale issue of, of people that are in there. And there is a treatment issue of people that were in there. I remember a story a couple of weeks ago of like soldiers, I think it was in Latvia, that had to buy their own helmets or bulletproof vests or whatever it was because the military wasn't mm -hmm. holding up its end of the bargain. And, uh, you know, it's easy to look and, and say that, you know, this is all just bureaucracy and mismanagement, but it, it's that government is also... I fear, and this is not to sound conspiratorial, but directly or indirectly killing off the military. Yeah. I mean, you know, joining the military for many people, and it certainly was for me, uh, there's this this sort of inner fire that you have that you want to to join and you want to be part of something that important within your country. You want to contribute. You You want to do something positive and good and serve your country. And you want to do it at a very, very high level too. That's something that we don't often talk about. You don't want to go in there and be mediocre. You want to go in there and be exceptional. And when you look at this, and this is something many of the veterans I know right now are, are find, find very offensive, this relaxing in the standards of dress and deportment, um, because we believe it also contributes to a lack of personal discipline a lack of respect for authority in, in wartime, I'm sorry, but it's, it's a military. It's not necessarily a democracy. It certainly isn't on the battlefield. When you're told to jump, you jump. And you know, that comes from discipline, it, like good order and discipline. And, you know, in terms of how you look and feel, I want to feel in my uniform, like I am the biggest, baddest, you know, force to be reckoned with on the battlefield. I don't want to be you know, me and having my own personal ethics, but flanked by either side with guys on the battlefield with their, their nails polished and earrings and long hair. I want to know that I'm there doing the work of the military to the best of my ability and with other people that feel the same. And so when I look at this drop in standard, I would say that it is directly attributable to this wokeism ideology that is completely engulfed the senior leadership uh, of the Canadian military. And that's, you know, Army, Navy, Air. And you're right, there's not that many people in uniform right now. We're, we're somewhere shy of, uh, or short of about 12,000 to 16,000 positions are, are vacant in the Canadian mm -hmm. force right now. And I don't see that improving because I don't view the Canadian military as a winning team. You know, it's just not what it used to be. It's not a. It's not the the military that we had in Afghanistan, uh, that were highly sought after in terms of NATO cooperation, NATO operations. You know, JTF two was often selected by the Americans because they were so good. And I can't you know answer for for the state of them now, but that's an example. As a Canadian special operations teams 
were highly sought after to go on missions. I know Canadian soldiers were highly sought after. And I'll tell you, there's a saying from World War II, and it was from, I believe it was from Rommel. He said that the unstoppable army, the unstoppable army in the world, German officers, American equipment, and Canadian soldiers. Hmm. You can't say that today. You cannot say that today. I'm sorry. And I'm, and I'm not trying to criticize the people that are currently serving, but look at the state of the Canadian military right now. We have, a, we have less people in the regular force right now, or roughly around the same size as the New York City Police Department. That's wow. the state of the Canadian military. And it's only going to get worse when they start taking religion or religious freedom away from soldiers expressing that. Because what's next? A padre can't express himself, his, you know, so show symbols. But what does that say for the soldier now? You're not going to be allowed to wear a cross. You're not going to be able to pray at the, in the mess. You know, where does it end? This is just one step in a long line of questionable conduct by the senior leadership. Yeah. And, and the chaplain general should know better. Yeah, and to weave the two issues we were talking about together, you can have a face tattoo and express yourself that way, but heaven forbid there's a cross. If you've got a cross on your cheek, you can't yes. have a face tattoo or something. Exactly. That's where things are going. Uh, Tom Morazzo, author of the fantastic book, The People's Emergency Act, which you can see just in the, the top, uh, I think it's left yep. corner. On my screen, it's the Sorry, left corner. Andrew. And yeah, I, I and Andrew, I got I got yours too. I got yours too on the okay. On the okay yours right I, I've just got, the, and I got uh, like the Chinese translation of mine uh, handy. Oh, I nice. gave my last English one away. Nice. So uh, take from that what you will. Great. But uh, it's a great book and uh, you can get that on Amazon. And uh, you can also yes. look at my interview with Tom when that book came out a few weeks back, uh, which is over at tnc.news. Well, uh, Tom Morazzo, thank you again for your service and thanks for coming on today. Thanks, Andrew. All right, Tom Morazzo, that does it for us for today. We'll be back tomorrow with more of Canada's most irreverent talk show right at 1 p.m. Eastern, uh, what is that, noon Central, 11 a.m. Mountain Time, and a uh, nice little uh, late morning, 10 a.m. start in British Columbia. And we'll uh, do uh, the Atlantic Canada Times the next time. Uh, thank you, God bless, and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.